You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we're concentrating on diabetes. Later on, we'll hear about research which has looked at the various methods of stenting and which are better in diabetic patients. So that brings this whole different question of can we actually apply the results we saw from Barry 2D to the current uh, era where we are using more of these third generation stents. But first, Mabel Chu gets the lowdown on the use of newer insulin analogues for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. I have with me in the studio Edwin Gale, who is Emeritus Professor of Diabetes at the University of Bristol. Edwin is here to discuss his article for the BMJ Therapeutics series on the role of the newer insulins in managing type 2 diabetes. Edwin, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you. Now, tell us, what are the newer insulins that you talk about in your article? Okay, well, if I can give a a very brief history of insulin. Insulin used to be extracted from animal pancreas, um, and it used to be rather impure. Then in the 70s, they produced pure insulins, and in the 80s, they produced biosynthetic human insulin. Uh, And having found out how to produce biosynthetic insulin, they, of course, produce superhuman insulins, insulins modified to make them uh, in their pharmacokinetic properties so they'd come in quicker or give you a smoother ride. That was the principle of it. They came in in the 1990s and they've taken over quite a large share of the UK market at present. And so that listeners will know what insulins you're talking about, could you name a few? We're we're talking presumably about insulin analogues, aren't we? Yes, that's right. The insulin analogues, there are two longer-acting insulin analogues. The one that's really the market leader at present is insulin glargine, also known as Lantus. Um, This is an insulin which effectively forms microcrystals when you inject it under the skin, and those crystals then dissolve into the circulation. Uh, The other type is insulin detamere, otherwise known as levamere, and this is insulin attached to a fatty acid tail, which means that it binds to albumin in the circulation and therefore hangs around much longer than uh, a standard insulin would do. And does the evidence live up to the hype? How well do they work? Uh, First of all, they're only delivery systems. They're simply ways of getting insulin to its target. Insulin is insulin and its receptor recognises only insulin. The quick-acting insulins have been, I think, rather oversold. Um, The only double-blind trial ever done showed no advantage in overall control uh, for the newer insulins as against conventional insulins uh, injected shortly before meals. Um, So I think the convenience of the quick-acting insulins hasn't really translated into real clinical benefit. Uh, With the longer-acting insulins, uh, are useful in type 1 diabetes. They provide a slightly smoother and more even distribution of insulin, although you know, statements to the effect that they're flat or provide constant absorption of insulin are really highly imaginative. Every insulin you inject rises and then falls again. But they have less of a, a rise and fall than standard insulins. Uh, you'll see some benefits in type 1 diabetes, but they haven't really emerged for the great majority of people with type 2 diabetes. Yes, I've heard you describe the difference between insulin management in type 1 and type 2 diabetes as rather like the difference between driving a sports car and driving a lorry. 
Hence, the minor differences in newer insulins are, I guess, less clear in type 2 diabetes. Now, you've said there's no obvious advantage with the newer, quicker-acting insulin in type 2 diabetes, and perhaps marginal advantage with the newer, longer-acting insulins. So how safe are the newer insulins? Well, the the quick-acting insulins, the short-acting insulins, um, appear to be safe. Um, The only thing you have to take account of is their sharper in onset of actions. With the longer-acting insulins, they're have been no particular safety concerns with uh, Desimir, that's uh, Levomir insulin. With Lantus insulin, there have been some concerns about mitogenicity. Certainly in the laboratory, Lantus insulin has more overlap with insulin growth factor uh, than uh, other insulins do. And it's been shown to promote the growth of certain cancer cell lines in vitro. Uh, so there have been concerns about that, and some preliminary epidemiological studies suggested a possible increase in the risk of breast cancer. At present, um, the consensus is that uh, this has not been proved. It's been shown that Lantus insulin is broken down to a less uh, mitogenic form soon after injection, uh, and the epidemiology is certainly not clear at this point. So at the moment, it's got a green light, but it's under you know, some future consideration. Okay, and what about uh, local reactions, such as injection site reactions? Are they a problem at all? Um, only for a few people. Uh, particularly in the development phase of Lantus, there were troubles with uh, irritation. Uh, I mentioned earlier that this insulin precipitates under the skin, uh, forming tiny crystals, and in the earlier formulations, uh, this was quite a problem for patients. But now it's, the problem's largely been mon- mastered. But about 1% of patients will complain of some soreness or irritation at injection sites, which usually won't, won't, uh, won't persist. Now, let's move on to the question of cost. How cost-effective are these new analogues? I, I always think when it comes to um, nice appraisals and so on, I'm slightly reaching into the fiction section of the property of a new drug. The costing of the analogues, uh, as compared with, let's say, standard NPH or isophane insulin, uh, first of all, they cost between uh, three or four times as much if you're looking at the long-acting insulins. So that's quite a markup. In terms of uh, efficacy, they have not been shown to produce uh, better overall control. That's absolutely clear. Uh, They haven't convincingly been shown to reduce the frequency of severe hypoglycemia, uh, but there are data to suggest that nocturnal hypoglycemia is less common uh, with the long-acting analogues in type 2 diabetes. Uh, This having been said, uh, this has been demonstrated in studies uh, in which the investigators shoot for really low fasting glucose levels which is well known to increase the rate of nocturnal hypoglycemia. So the tests have not really been undertaken under clinical conditions. Okay, let's move on to the practical issues around prescribing. Um, I have a patient in front of me whose glucose control is gradually losing its grip with oral hypoglycemic agents. When should I reach out for an insulin analogue rather than the older insulins? Well, this is um, one of the big questions in diabetes at the moment. 
In the past, of course, you had metformin, you had sulfonylureas, and then if that didn't work, you watched the HbA1c rising and you reached for your insulin prescription. Nowadays, we have more options. We have the option of adding further prescriptions, a DPP-4 inhibitor or a GLP-1 analog. So there's still discussion uh, and some uncertainty in the guidelines. Um, the various guidelines allow a certain amount of flexibility. Uh, there may be a case, for example, in trying for a GLP-1 analog in certain categories of patients, people who are uh, particularly overweight and insulin resistant, for example, might do better than going straight on to insulin. But this is uh, an area where there is room for clinical judgment. Uh, what everyone would agree is that once your HbA1c is above 8% and rising, other causes of poor control excluded uh, and other medications having been tried, uh, if all that fails, then insulin is, is what is left. And in that situation, it's a very useful and uh, uh, indeed necessary treatment. There is, as I say, this area of indecision in people, let's say, whose HbA1c is around 8%, not doing as well as they should, uh, and where there are various treatment options available. Uh, I have my own views, but uh, I, I wouldn't inflict them on your listeners. <laughs> okay. And when to choose an insulin analogue over the tried and true insulins? NICE has looked at this very carefully, and indeed every evidence-based body that has looked at the question of the analogues versus standard insulins in type 2 diabetes has reached the same conclusion. And that conclusion is that they uh, are not clinically justified or cost-effective except in certain subcategories of patients. NICE will say, uh, and I would agree with that, that they're appropriate in people who are having difficulties with control despite optimizing insulin therapy on other insulins. Uh, in general, my experience is that people in that category uh, don't get a dramatic benefit from an analog, but sometimes they help. A second is in people who are unable to give their own injections. Detamir and Lantus are both longer acting than standard NPH. So if you have an elderly person who can only uh, receive one injection a day from another person, they might be the best insulin in that particular situation. And the third situation in which it's appropriate to use them is when you have problems with hypoglycemia despite optimizing uh, insulin treatment with standard insulins. So those are the three generally agreed in indications for using them. Okay. Are there any uh, important issues around monitoring with the insulin analogues over and above what you would normally do for somebody on insulin? No, I don't think so. Um, if, they're on, if a patient's on a short-acting insulin, obviously the warning is that you don't have time to hang around after you've given your injection before a meal. Um, but I think patients understand that very well. With the longer-acting insulins, there are no special precautions. Uh, you just manage people in the same way as usual. Mm -hmm. And your paper, of course, details uh, issues such as administration and the timing of doses. So we would ask listeners to, to look to the paper for that. So how would you sum up the role of insulin analogues in type 2 diabetes? Uh, the only comment I would make is that there is nothing wrong with the insulin analogues except that they have been uh, they're overpriced and overpraised. 
they're, they're useful insulins, but they're not uh, two to four times as effective or as cost-effective as other insulins. In due course, they'll become generic, and then uh, in the course of time, we'll see what their real place is in diabetes. But my feeling is they've been effectively marketed, which other people might rephrase as being oversold. Um, and I think we, we just have to follow the evidence. I think NICE has done a good job. And unfortunately, people haven't listened to what NICE has been saying. Edwin, thank you very much for updating us on the place of these newer insulins. And that article is available online and in print this week. Now, Harriet Vickers talks to one of the authors of a study looking at stenting in diabetic patients. Patients with diabetes have worse outcomes following percutaneous coronary interventions, but the relative safety and efficacy of the different types of stent available is incompletely defined. Now, a meta-analysis recently published on bmj.com has come up with some answers, and joining me on the line now to discuss these is Sri Pal Bangalore, Director of Research, Cardiac Catheterization Lab, and Assistant Professor of Medicine at New York University School of Medicine. So welcome to the podcast, Sripal. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Firstly, which outcomes are worse for patients with diabetes? And have these so far been linked to, to bare metal stents or any of the various forms of drug-eluting stents in particular? I mean, if you look at all of the data, uh, the data actually suggests that when you compare diabetics to patients without diabetes, diabetic patients tend to do worse. Even when you trace it back to the balloon angioplasty era, patients with diabetes tended to come back for repeat procedures. They tended to have more uh, MIs and uh, eventually death compared to patients without diabetes. And kind of that has translated down, like, you know, from the balloon angioplasty era to bare metal stent era, now to the DES uh, era. So even in the DES era, when you compare patients without diabetes, patients with diabetes tend to do worse. Hmm. So tell me a bit about the, the drug-eluting stents that you decided to examine in this analysis. We decided to uh, examine only the uh, durable polymer drug-eluting stents, and these were the four which are currently FDA-approved uh, in the United States, and these are uh, serolimus eluting stents, the paclitaxel eluting stents, the everolimus eluting stents, and the zotrolimus eluting stents. That being said, I mean, there is a f uh, another stent which is currently FDA-approved, uh, and that is the resolute zotrolimus eluting stent. And, uh, I mean, I just want to be clear that the results are not applicable to the resolute zotrolimus eluting stents because there, there just wasn't good enough uh, data to be included in this uh, analysis. So the results uh, from this meta-analysis is mainly applicable to the older generation zotrolimus eluting stents. So, so you did a, a fairly complex meta-analysis looking um, at the efficacy and safety of, of the different types of stents your paper's all, all free to look at on the on the site if anyone wants to look at it in any more detail. Um, but in a nutshell, you, you picked out 42 trials in, which included patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention for de novo coronary lesions. Um, that came to just over 10,700 patients and you had just over 22,800 follow-up hours. So what were your results? What were the, the efficacy outcomes that you looked at? 
the efficacy we looked at uh, is target vessel revascularization and also target lesion revascularization. And these are uh, both indicators of restenosis. So the efficacy in terms of preventing these patients from coming back. In terms of safety, we looked at actually three uh, distinct outcomes. One was death. Two, we wanted to look at uh, myocardial infarction. And three, the one of the things we uh, constantly worry about after we put in a stent is the risk of stent thrombosis. And that is a blood clot forming within the stent. And and what did you find with the um, the bare metal stents compared to the drug eluting and the different types of drug eluting stents compared to each other? Yeah, so as a quick background, I mean, you know, there have been studies which in the past had looked at uh, bare metal versus drug eluting stents. And since the diabetic cohort was very small, there have been various reports that drug eluting stents are not as efficacious as you would see them in the normal population. So what we found from our 42 trials is that all of the currently used uh, drug eluting stents are efficacious at reducing the risk of restenosis. But of course, I mean, what we found was we can't just talk about drug eluding stents as a homogeneous group. I mean, it, mm. the efficacy is actually quite heterogeneous. And we found that, you know, the efficacy in reducing the risk of restenosis varies anywhere between 37% to around 69%. Okay. And, and you had one that came out on top with regard to, to efficacy and safety, didn't you? Right. So what we found was for efficacy, we found that the Everolimus uh, eluding stents were the most efficacious. I mean, we used several different uh, analyses which can be seen on the manuscript, but the probability that Everolimus uh, stents were the best was around, uh, I think, greater than 80%. It's not only efficacious, but also safe. And in uh, some of the studies uh, in the prior analysis, you've shown that it's actually safer than a bare metal stent with lower risk of uh, stent thrombosis. So it's a good positive message really has come out of this analysis is that the drug eluting stents weren't significantly less efficacious or, or safe than the bear and also that Everolimus is, is best in both these categories. Th- that's correct. Okay. Do you know how these results compared to those for the general population? I'm just wondering if these Everolimus eluting stents are simply the, the best available or if there's something about them that makes them particularly suitable for diabetic patients. We actually published a larger analysis looking at around 76 trials and 117,000 patients' years of follow-up. We didn't restrict it to diabetics. This is for the general pa- cohort of patients undergoing percutaneous coronary interventions. And and what we showed there was pretty interesting. In terms of efficacy, there was a three-way tie for the topmost stents. So one was um, Everolimus, second was Cirolimus, and third was the Resolute Zotrolimus eluting stents. So this is for efficacy. But in terms of safety, what we found was it was uh, extremely interesting that uh, uh, the Everolimus uh, eluting stents were still the best in terms of safety. Okay. So, so there are some differences, uh, but the overwhelming message seems to be that the Everolimus eluding stents uh, do pretty well. Do you think your results should change the way clinicians choose interventions for their patients with, with diabetes when we have other options such as surgery or, or optimal medical treatment? 
that's a question which is difficult to answer for many reasons. I mean, we know that in terms of choosing revascularization versus medical therapy, there have been trials. I mean, you know, we have the BADI 2D trial, which specifically asked that question, should we, in patients with diabetes who have coronary artery disease, should we be just treating them with medications versus giving them good medication plus revascularizing those patients? And that trial actually found there was no difference uh, between the two strategies. But that being said, um, when the trial was done, only 30% of the patients uh, in the PADI 2D trial uh, received a drug-eluting stents, uh, and all of those stents were actually first-generation drug-eluting stents. The article which we published uh, in BMJ clearly shows that the newer generation stents are more efficacious and also safe. So that brings this whole different question of can we actually apply the results we saw from BADI 2D to the current uh, era where we are using more of these third generation stents. And secondly, I think this the results from whatever we've shown in the article will make a physician be more comfortable in using a, a drug eluding stents in patients with diabetes. So I think we have moved a long way in terms of uh, treatment options for patients with diabetes. And that article is available for free on bmj.com or in print this week, where it's made the cover. If you want more on the management, treatment and etiology of diabetes, have a look at the BMJ Group's Diabetes Portal. It's an easy way to find articles from across all the journals in the group, as well as learning modules and info from the best practice team on the subject. That's bmj.com forward slash diabetes. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back finding out why blaming primary care for the increase in emergency admissions isn't as easy as you'd think. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.